Welcome to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. Does the nature of a near-death experience depend on the person? What part does the brain have to play in what happens? How do we define real? Hey there, and welcome to the 553rd edition of Behind the Paranormal with... Paul and Ben Eno. I am Ben, and those near-deadly questions came from my co-host and partner in the paranormal, my dad. And this evening we welcome a very distinguished neurologist, or neuroscientist, I should say, on a fascinating subject, and uh, we welcome your phone calls. The numbers are 401-766-1240, and from anywhere in the uh, U.S. or Canada area, 800-449-1240. Dr. Kevin R. Nelson has practiced medicine for 35 years and is a noted expert in neuromuscular neurology. He has held a number of research, clinical, teaching, and administrative positions in the University of Kentucky's Neurology Department and the University's Albert B. Chandler Medical Center, including Director of Medical Affairs, responsible for the credentialing of 1,300 University of Connecticut healthcare physicians and providers, and overseeing the clinical activity of 1,700 physicians and healthcare providers. As a neurologist, Dr. Nelson also has devoted decades to the study of near-death and out-of-the-body experiences. His most recent book, The Spiritual Doorway in the Brain, A Neurologist's Search for the God Experience. Alrighty, so Dr. Nelson, welcome to Behind the Paranormal. Well, thank you for having me. Oh, well, it's great to have you. So before we do anything else, let's get straight to some terms and definitions, because we love defining our terms here on uh, Behind the Paranormal, because people often understand things in different ways. I know I understand things in very strange ways. So <laughs> that's especially true for the words like mind and consciousness and even brain. So let's start with, what's the difference between the mind and the brain? Well, the mind is the product of the brain. The mind is a process and it is the experience, it's oftentimes the subjective experience that is produced by the, the workings of the brain in the background. Hmm, interesting. So how would you define consciousness? Well, consciousness is a state of awareness, and that awareness can be of something outside of the person or it can be some awareness of something within the person. Hmm. So what's the difference between consciousness and, or well, the the conscience and, uh, or conscious, sorry, <clears throat> conscious and subconscious, Mondays? <laughs> sure, I understand. It's Monday here, too. Um, <laughs> the subconscious, consciousness to be aware, subconscious implies that there are workings probably either of the mind or the brain that, can manifest themselves in consciousness, but the actual workings and and the influence that they're they're having are not um, the person's not consciously aware of. So many researchers, especially theoretical physicists, talk about the non-locality of the uh, of consciousness, of memory, imagination, and even aspects of personality. So, what's your opinion on that front? Well, you know, first off, I wonder what theoretical physicists are doing about consciousness. I mean, it's sort of, you know, since uh, it's really the brain that produces consciousness, um, I really turn to people who know about the brain for that. Um, but that, that aside, um, there is no one place within the human brain where you can say, oh, that's the seat of consciousness. You know, that's that's where consciousness arises from. And in fact, you can take away half the brain and someone will still be conscious. They'll be aware of 
themselves, but be aware of their surroundings. Now, the content of their awareness will be horrifically distorted and and, um, malformed, but they will, in fact, still retain um, the the property of consciousness. What do you mean by uh, content of awareness? Well, um, let's see, for example, your right foot. Until I mentioned your right foot, you probably weren't aware of it, weren't thinking about it. Certainly, I wasn't thinking of mine until I mentioned it, Mm -hmm. but now you are. So, your right foot, where it is in your shoe, you know, whether it's warm or cold, uh, what position it is, where it is in space, all those things were coming at you, but were they were in the subconscious portion of the brain. It's not until I brought your right foot to your attention did the experience in, um, of, of your foot um, enter your consciousness. Hmm. Interesting. So how did you get into the near-death uh, experiences as well as the uh, OBE research? Well, you know, like many people enter many things. By accident, um, the you know, the um, I was uh, a young intern, um, and I had moved from Michigan um, to New Mexico, and there was a huge cultural shock, and and uh, I was just beginning my medical career. I was training; I was not yet studying neurology, um, and I had a patient, and this patient, and I will never forget; it was a very vivid experience for me. Um, Joe is his name. And one day he tells me about this fantastic experience he had in the ICU and how Jesus came and saved him. And I listened and thought, well, okay, I'm kind of intrigued and um, obviously very intrigued because this was very clearly a, a powerful experience and had transformed his life. And you could see that, you know, I wasn't so much skeptical, but I was, I was, you know, asking about it, um, and so I said, oh, I painted a picture, and I'll bring the pi- off um, in to you. Well, the picture of the painting was too big, and so he took a photograph of it, but this is a simple man who'd been a laborer all of his life, and he brought this photo to me, and I still have the photo to this day, you know, those 35 years later, and it shows Joe lying in an ICU bed surrounded by all the machinery of modern medicine, um, and there was the devil trying to take his soul in the ICU. And Joe had just been discharged from the ICU and the intensive and the intensive, you know, um, the cardiac care unit because he had had some heart disturbances. And the devil um, was trying to take his soul. The guardian angel was trying to prevent the devil, but the devil was pretty strong. And it wasn't until his Savior, Jesus Christ, came and dispelled the devil that Joe knew he was going to live. He was going to get out of the ICU, and he, and he was spiritually transformed. Uh, you know, who couldn't be moved by that, <laughs> by that, that can account? I, can, and, can I interject yeah. here, please? Uh, yeah. uh, doctor, you said that this was in a photograph? Yeah, he he made a painting. Oh, he made a painting. Theory. I'm sorry. Okay. Oh, yeah. Because I've yeah. seen some strange things with a naked eye at on, at deathbeds. So I'll tell you later. Well, <laughs> Get your opinion. Yeah, well, well I'd be interested in hearing it. Um, but Joe had ex- this experience while he was on, in the ICU recovering from a cardiac event of some sort. 
Um, so he experienced, you know, and saw this. I mean, to him, this was as real as my speaking to him in, in clinic. And, and so, you know, I took out his photo. He graciously gave it to me. And I, I kept it. And I thought to myself, one day, when I know more about the brain, I'm going to return to this kind of experience and see how the brain might be participating in this kind of experience. Because as a neurologist, as a neuroscientist, I am am absolutely convinced that the brain underlies our experience and participates in our experience. And, And so after you know, a, a fairly long, um, uh, very conventional kind of career. I had, had, had some, I had opportunity to, to sit back and, and examine um, the, uh, the phenomena. So I got the photo out and I thought, well, you know, I'm, uh, how do I go about looking at this phenomenon? And I thought, well, the, what, what, you, what I have, have been taught, you know, particularly in research and in medicine, is that you go to the primary source. And so I thought, well, I'll read Ray Moody's Life After Life. But it, it was that book um, that Dr. Moody published that really chronicled a series of near-death experiences and, and re- in fact, gave us the term near-death experience. And so I started reading the book and looking, trying to get some clues, you know, of what a what a... Um, of what might be going on medically. And uh, unfortunately, Dr. Moody didn't include very many medical facts or, um, or descriptions, but um, he did write about one case, uh, Mrs. Martin, um, that absolutely stopped me in my tracks. He, and Mrs. Martin has suffered a, a cardiac arrest um, in the radiology suite. And uh, the radiologist, who aren't trained to handle these matters, um, thought that Mrs. Martin was dead, but Mrs. Mrs. Martin wasn't dead, in fact. Um, so the radiologist went over to the phone and, and uh, called the, the Mrs. Martin's uh, physician and said, you know, I killed your patient, Mrs. Martin, but she, she related to Dr. Um, uh, Moody, I, I knew I wasn't dead. I tried to move or let them know, but, you know, she couldn't. And so I read that passage, and I thought, well, what natural process, what natural physiologic uh, mechanism paralyzes us? And then, and then it hit me. Well, we're paralyzed many times a night in our sleep, it's actually during REM or our dreaming consciousness, and then, and then when I it just sort of hit me like, well, that element of consciousness explains a great deal about the near death experience in physiologic terms, and uh, so that, that got me on my way. Hmm. So you, you made an interesting point, and um, we've heard this point made before that it's essentially these are experiences of. Um, well, they're underlined by by the brain, as you said. But does that make the experience any less real, or is it real at all? Well, I think that that's the kind of thing that people have to answer for themselves. Um, I, I am a an adherent of William James, and William James wrote a, a, a an absolutely phenomenal book called the The Variety of Religious Experience, and 
And there's a phrase in there that is often overlooked, and it really, I thought, well encapsulated James's view of spiritual experiences. So he called them religious experiences, but we, today we term them spiritual experiences. He says, he said, it's by their fruits ye shall know them, not by their roots. In other words, it's what what spiritual experience brings to us that's important. You know, what what's behind it, you know, and perhaps even the brain mechanisms behind it, they're of lesser importance. You know, so so I I think that's really important to focus on on what these experiences provide us and because they're extremely powerful experiences and, and I think that it would be a mistake, a huge mistake, to discount their, their, their importance. That's rather good theology actually. Well well I'm I'm a scientist and I you know what and what I have developed is a keen um, appreciation for the difference between faith and science, knowing what faith, you know, what lies in, in the in the realm of faith and which lies in the province of science, I think I think that's a that's a balance that far too few and, and um, people strike, and in fact, some people fail to strike it with what I consider to be nearly irresponsible um, uh, actions. That, that raises an interesting point, Doctor, because uh, we, we tend to think rather oddly compared with most people born in the West. <laughs> yeah. uh, the question we might ask is, is what you know, would be the difference between one realm and another? Is there not simply one realm? However, be that as it may, um, I'm wondering if um, our epistemology, our, our way of knowing what we know or way of thinking we know what we know, is actually up to this. Um, I'm thinking too that uh, <clears throat> the excuse me, I, throat's not what it should be. Must be Monday. Uh, I'm wondering too that uh, if if we can, um, how far we can actually get using our modern paradigm? How far can we get with either science or faith and understanding these things? Is, is this bigger than than we are to the point where we we, we really can't know what is going on when it comes to experiences? Conscious or superconscious experiences, such as out of the body or near death experiences. Well, I think there are real limits um, to what we can know and what we can know through science. Um, science isn't the only way we can know things, but it's a very important way of knowing things. Sure. Um, I I think that there are definite limits, and, and it's beyond those limits that that theology and other disciplines, you know, take us now. Um, where I have trouble is when people will say that, you know, this or that is true, you know, based on science, when in fact is there's science is, is more limited than we sometimes want to think. I mean, the, or appreciate because, you know, science has brought, brought us, you know, incredible things. Uh, and it's enriched in a material and, sense, yes. Yeah. Um, and in other ways too, you know, as an indirect consequence, uh, perhaps, but, but certainly, um, but the, the methodology of science is, is really based on verification and reproducibility, predictability, you mm-hmm. know, and, and those things can't tell us everything we might want to know. No. Um, so, so, you know, but on the other hand, um, I think, you know, you can't discount that, you know, you can't discount the proven value 
of of the scientific method. Oh no, not not by any means, but but what one might question the uh, what can be seen as the over specialization, perhaps in not just American education for for generations. Uh, but in, a genera- in in education generally uh, around the world, higher education and, and everything else. I mean, one the farther one goes in knowledge, it seems the one the more one specializes. I mean, Ben perhaps could address that somewhat. Uh, being a senior in college right being now, being a yes, a product of the yeah. over specialized system. Yeah. And, and yeah. one wonders if that if that in itself is a limitation. Well, I think it is. I mean, uh, I mean you know, we can't know everything, and so and we and we do. Um, we do have to specialize, but, you know, that's what an old-fashioned liberal arts education is all about. Oh, yeah, I uh, couldn't have put so, it better. <laughs> so, uh, look, I want to get back to one thing if I can. Sure, sure. Um, and that's, you know, the brain, the, the, the supposition that the brain underlies, um, you know, a great deal of all of these experiences, you know. And, and I must say, in the, in the course of having written this book, that one of the things that really... I think astounded me was how fearful people are that the brain could be participating in these experiences. Um, and I think, you know, and the fact that the brain, you know, is, you know, important in these experiences, some people want to completely discount. Now, um, let me, let me draw a, I'll, I'll draw two, two analogies. First, first, um, um, you know, I don't need to know how my pancreas and liver are working in order to enjoy a good gourmet meal, you know. So <laughs> so on one hand, you know, do I need to know the brain working, you know, to enjoy the fruits? Do I need to know the roots of these experiences to enjoy the fruits? And the answer is no, like William James said. I mean, we can, we, we you know, we should focus on, on the fruits. But on the other hand, there is a, a brain behind this. And if... No, I, I grew up in you know Midwestern Protestant you know background, and so um, some of my my analogies are going to call upon that. And, and I'm thinking like Saint um, Saint Matthew, who wrote you know um, the Apostle Matthew, who who um, wrote uh, an important chapter in the New Testament. You know when he was writing that chapter, you know I. I feel pretty confident that he was using the same portions of brain and language in the brain that I'm using right now, you know? And, you know, so the fact that he was using this brain, you know, using the portions that you and I are using today, you know, that that really shouldn't be a matter of great controversy. But but some, and it usually isn't, you know? Mm -hmm. You know, if I were to, you know, um, you know, that I think that I would um, I'd give very little pushback. But Paul, when you start saying, "Well, you know, the brain is participating in your death experience," now then you get, you know, there's a there there's a large um, faction in the United States which is um, hostile to that view. Uh, you're familiar, I'm sure, with the work of uh, Dr. Michael Persinger in Sudbury, Ontario. Yes, I am. Yes, he's, he's been on the show, and we had uh, we had a, a much better time with him than we expected to. Yes, uh, okay. 
because uh, we really kind of um, not that we like people who necessarily agree with us all the time, and but when he didn't, but but the entire point that one of the things Ben was getting at with you, Doctor, was you know uh, what what is the nature of real? Just because he has uh, Doctor Michael Persinger has his the God helmet as he calls and and can stimulate yes. uh, the experiences of a near death experience in the laboratory. Uh, does that mean it's not real? And he said, no, it doesn't mean it's not real. And we, yeah. we were ready to kind of take him on with that, but uh, it was... So it's, it's an expanded, uh, perhaps, um, way of thinking about just what you said. Well, let, let, me, let, let me give it kind of the same idea in a little different venue. Um, let's talk about psilocybin mushrooms. Um, they, they are an important stimulant of uh, the serotonin 2A and C, which are um, the the receptors in the brain that are probably underlie um, the mystical sense of oneness. And we, and we know that there there is a lasting spiritual transformation that can happen with uh, if one takes psilocybin mushrooms. That was shown by um, a study probably about three or four years ago, very very rigorously scientifically done. Um, is that spiritual transformation of those subjects? Is that real? I mean, is that a false, you know, transformation? No, I think I think it's real. You know, it was brought on by a very direct and deliberate stimulation of the serotonergic, you know, type two and um, and C uh, uh, receptors, um, at least as we understand understand this mechanism today. Um, that makes it no less real. Makes their spiritual transformation no less true. Sure. Hmm. Oh well, we actually had a few uh, listeners writing in that I, I guess I, I guess it is kind of confusing to get the terms near death experience and uh, out of the body experience confused, but sure. they wanted to know the difference between those those two experiences. Oh yeah, for sure. Um, sometimes um, not all near death experiences have an out of body experience, and not all out of body experiences are with near death. And in fact, most out-of-body experiences are not during the near-death experience. Most actually, or a great deal of them, happen during REM consciousness. Now, um, that surprises a lot of people, but it, it's been well shown by several very rigorous surveys that one out of 20 persons walking the streets has a near, an out-of-body experience. One out of 20, that's, a, that's really high, you know. I mean, that's a lot of people. So mm. if you look in a crowded room, there's going to be several people in that room that will have had an out-of-body experience. Now, they're not going to talk and t- about it and tell you necessarily, but I can tell you after I speak um, in very in many different venues that people come up to me afterwards and go, yeah, I've, I've had one, and I've never really talked about it because it seems so strange. Um but they're relatively common, and they're most common during REM consciousness, usually in the transition between waking and REM consciousness, when when the, the, the conscious states of waking and REM can blend with one another. Now, why should we have an out-of-body experience? During REM consciousness. Sir, I apologize for that background noise. Ben's checking yeah. it out. Okay, go ahead. I'm sorry to interrupt. Yeah. So why should we have... Why should out-of-body experiences occur during REM consciousness? Well, there are 
two two observations that that tie this together. Two principal observations. One was made by Dr. Olf Blank in Switzerland, who, when he found that on the course of evaluating people for seizure surgery, if he put a a, a faint electrical current in one area called the temporal parietal area, that he, somebody could have an autobiotic experience. They could they could float up when you turn the current on, turn the current off, they're back in their body, turn the current on, they're out of their body, you know, going up and down like they're in an elevator with the flip of a switch. So, But this tells us that this was in one area of the brain, the temporal parietal area, and it could be actually on either side. One of the things that happens during REM consciousness, you know, there's, you know, REM consciousness happens. That's when we do our dreaming during sleep. Yeah, REM standing the, for rapid eye movement. In case exactly. Yeah. yeah, where there's a robust activation of the visual system. One of the things that happens is that two areas of the brain are turned off. Now, normally we think of things happening when the brain turns on an area, you know, or a center. But, in fact, counterintuitive um, to the average person, a lot, a great deal of the brain, uh, things happen, you know, from the brain when we turn an area off. And one, of, and if we turn an area off in the temporal parietal area, which is what happens in REM consciousness, we know this through PET scans. Um, that is the same area that Doctor Blank stimulated or turned off with his electrical pulses. So, the the fact that um, that you know, in REM, we know for a fact that the temporal parietal area, which is associated with out of body experience, is also associated in REM consciousness. Now, why, you know, is speculative, but one of the reasons is that, in fact, one of one of the features of REM consciousness is the isolation during the dream state. You know, um, during dreaming, the the senses shut down. The body shuts down, um, and the body's paralyzed. That's getting back to Mrs. Martin, you know. Um, so the body briefly paralyzed during during REM consciousness. Now, what is unique about the temporal parietal area is that it's situated kind of in a crossroads of sensation. It's where where vision comes together, where the sensation of um, um, your joint position, your body comes together, the position, the sensation of where you are in Earth's gravitational field, whether you're up, down, sideways, or moving, all that comes together right, you know, in the crossroads in the temporal parietal area. So if you disrupt that integration, most likely that's what's causing an out-of-body experience. And if you disrupt it electrically, or if it just turns off, it naturally does in the room conscious. Okay. I'm afraid we'll have to stop for our break now. We're a little late in here, Doctor. I'll be right back. You're listening to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno on WON 1240 in New England's beautiful Blackstone River Valley. We'll be right back with Dr. Nelson in just a moment to continue our conversation about out-of-the-body experiences, etc. Are you a parrot head? 
Are your friends parrot heads? Is your parrot a parrot head? Hi, everybody. This is Joe Callahan, and I'm inviting you into the Tiki Bar every Tuesday night from 6 to 7 right here on ON 1240, WON Socket Radio. It's a full hour of nothing but the best in Jimmy Buffett and the Coral Reefer Band. Every Tuesday night, 6 to 7, it's the Tiki Bar right here on ON 1240, WON Socket Radio. Come join us. And we're back already, and we wanted to remind you of several of the charities Ben and I have adopted. And many of them are veterans' charities, certainly locally here, BuildersHelpingHeroes.org. The Rhode Island Builders Association does uh, some great things, remodeling and even new construction uh, for um, veterans who have lost uh, uh, limbs or, or, or have been otherwise uh, severely wounded in combat or for the family of those who have been killed, families of those who have been killed uh, since 2011, uh, 2001, I should say. So uh, check that out, BuildersHelpingHeroes.org. Also, Canadian Veterans Advocacy for our friends to the north. And uh, uh, Mike Blaze in Ontario started a, a great organization to help advocate uh, legislatively and legally for veterans of, from Canada, uh, who, as you know, have been with us all along in the war on terror. And uh, certainly in uh, over in Los Angeles, uh, Youth Mentoring Connection, Tony LaRay out there has done wonderful work using uh, indigenous wisdom in, in a very practical manner to help at-risk youth. Very interesting approach with some terrific results. That's youthmentoring.org, so check that out as well. Okay, let's get back to our guest. Um, and we're, we're talking uh, this, this uh, hour with uh, Dr. Kevin R. Nelson of the University of Kentucky, a uh, renowned neuroscientist about near-death experiences and out-of-the-body experiences. Uh, doctor, let, let me share with you uh, one thing that happened to me that I will never forget. Now, I was a graduate, I was a seminary student and also a graduate student doing some, a little bit of special work in psychology at several psychiatric hospitals back in days of yore when there were more of those than there are today, far more inpatients than there were than there are now. For that's <laughs> probably better now. I don't know, but uh, uh, there was that, that's debatable. Yeah, it is debatable. You're right. But in one case, uh, there was a very uh, old Irish fellow of Irish derivation, upstate New York, Augsburg State Hospital, upstate New York, and I was at the bedside with a doctor and several of the staff, and the man was paralyzed from the neck down, and he he was he was dying. You know, he, he simply couldn't couldn't move. He could talk. But all of a sudden, he um, sat up, which he couldn't do. He said, Abba, Ba, which is Hebrew, and it's a very intimate form of, of daddy. It's like a father is coming. Abba actually literally translated would mean daddy is coming. And then he fell back down in, in absolute peace, and he had passed. And, and uh, we all kind of looked at each and this little Irish guy had been a laborer all his life. He certainly didn't know Hebrew, and he, he literally could not physically sit up, and he did. I mean, have you seen anything like that? I mean, I don't know if I'd call that a near-death experience, but it probably, I suppose, was. That was, was a, well, you're, you're very near-to-death experience. I think so, uh, yes. Yeah. Uh, that's interesting. That, that is really interesting. Now, what was the phrase again that he said? He said, Abba, Ba. It's Hebrew. Yeah, uh, well, or at least, at least that—that's how I translate. Hebrew. Yeah, but well, it could be Hebrew, right? But yeah, and and I don't know any Hebrew, so you, you know, I'm I'm, a, I, you know, I'm in a disadvantage there. But okay. uh, but but I hear utterances that you know from people who are dying and gasping that sound similar to that. But you know, since I don't know Hebrew, I wouldn't have described it as being Hebrew. So, um, 
Did anybody else recognize it as Hebrew, or who first recognized it? As well, it, I, Hebrew? I I had to look it up. I mean, it sounded to me, you know, th- that was very clear to me that because you know, people think things are clear, but as Ben and I were talking about in a lecture just on Saturday, uh, people will take what they hear and and make the, the brain will make sense of it. Uh, either yeah. in a photograph or in, in utterances. That's why we have a lot of problems with some of these electronic voice phenomena that all these ghost hunters have in all this business. Right, right. So no, maybe exactly. it was subjective. Um, no, nobody else spoke Hebrew there. As I say, I had to go back to the yeah. seminary and look it up. And yeah. um, huh. But uh, it seemed very clear. And, and they're very simple sound. So perhaps yeah. I was misinterpreting. But nevertheless, I mean, there was no gasping. There was no struggling. He was, right. he was very right. peaceful. Right. But the right. fact that he sat up... In well, itself, it's, a, it's, it's, it's an intriguing experience. Um, yeah, well, sometimes people in their last moments um, will have, you know, an expenditure, uh, you know, of, of effort and energy that that um, that they didn't show earlier. Mm. Um, uh, um, what was he paralyzed from? You know? I don't remember. All I know is from the neck down, and this was a state hospital, so you had a lot of huh. you know non psychiatric patients. Right. You know, anybody could come in, didn't have any means. Well, there's a very rare condition called locked-in syndrome, where um, you know the probably the most famous historical account of this, the Count of Monte Cristo, mm. um, and uh, so a person or the I think the, there was a book called The Fly in the Bell Jar or um, butterfly and uh, about a French um, editor um, who also had a locked-in syndrome from the stroke. Um, but uh, we know that people who had locked-in syndrome can have very unusual somatic um, sensations, like feel that they've got an extra leg, you know, coming out of their neck or something like that. Sure. I mean, it can be yeah. very, very, very odd. Um, but well, that's interesting. Well, Paul, I, I'm I'm intrigued by that. Sure, I, I wish I'd, I sh- I should have perhaps, but it's 40 years ago, so I mean, I, you know, you know how that well, is. <laughs> well, I I do know how that is. Yeah. So, um, uh, simply uh, extending what we've been saying to a certain degree, I'm curious about, um, I suppose, what might be called, and maybe this is a real term. If it is, I'm not aware of it, but a sort of paleo neurology. Is is mm-hmm. is that a legitimate field yet? Uh, it could be. I, is that where you're studying the, the neurology of other species or well, or a, like ancient humans? I suppose. I suppose anthropology might might yeah. get into that yeah. to some degree. But yeah. The, yeah. The, but the point being, since we're talking about consciousness and the activity of the brain, etc., we we always say that um, the 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 paranormal, so to speak, is in a way the mother of both science and religion. Hence the the falsity in many cases of the battle between science and religion, in our opinion, anyway. As as I say, we think rather oddly here. Uh, but but if if our remotest ancestors had not encountered what they believed to be the supernatural or supernatural creatures, there probably would have been no religion. Had they not encountered questions that needed to be answered, even if it was just watching a sunset or watching a loved one die, I mean, there would there might have been no religion or Science, even had there been no questions, so I'm wondering what what play. And, and then, of course, the, there's the issue of, of how much hallucinogens may have played in the shaman experience. You know, all things that formed early thinking and early beliefs. Uh, what say you uh, about the place of the brain and all that? 
Uh, well, uh, not just shamans and, you know, uh, externally applied hallucinogens, but natural hallucinogens. I mean, the, you know, these receptors are there. Oh, sure. Functioning. So they're, 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 we didn't develop them evolutionarily just so we, we could we could eat psilocybin mushrooms um, <laughs> or uh, shamans. Um, they have other purposes. Sometimes we don't know what those purposes are. Um, I think that's an intriguing um, topic, and I think it's one that would requires a lot of speculation because there's um, there's a, a paucity of well, you know, you could do anthropological data and look at you know various practices, but I think that not just um, you know the hallucinogens, which you know are, um, but REM consciousness, for example. Um, if I, listen, I think that that plays a role, and 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 I think it's played a role in visions um, of um, throughout the ages. Um, for example, um, roughly twenty four percent of people, um, which is a quarter, will have some element of blending REM and waking consciousness. It's usually in the transition between REM, um, which we have late. In the morning, you know, late in the morning before we wake up, and waking consciousness, where you know you won't, you know, you won't switch directly from one to the other. There'll be a blending, and that blending can take different forms. It can take the form of paralysis. Um, it can take the form of, of visual hallucinations and auditory hallucinations. And in fact, one can have very florid visual hallucinations uh, during that time. Um, and one can also have what's called lucid dreaming, where I said I mentioned that there's two parts of the brain that are turned off during unconsciousness. One is the temporal parietal area for out-of-body experiences, and another one is the dorsal lateral prefrontal area, where if you uh, that's turned off, and that's probably that that's an area is critical to our executive thinking, you know, our logical thinking, our planning, and all that. So if you turn that off, that that may account for the bizarreness of of dreams and REM consciousness. But sometimes that's not turned off, and people can have insight that they're dreaming. So they can, you know, normally we don't know we're dreaming while we're dreaming. We've lost that insight. But on occasion, with with lucid dreaming, you um, there can be retention of that insight, and so you can have the strange blending of of kind of a a waking consciousness and and a form of REM consciousness um, where you're blending the insight at the same time you're dreaming. So I think these things can probably have had cultural influences for as long as we've been a species. Mm. Um, you know, things like that. Exactly how and they've expressed themselves. You know, I'm not an anthropologist, I can't tell you, but, but as a neuroscientist, I can I'd be shocked if they weren't happening. <laughs> sure. Uh, no, no, that makes a great deal of sense. Uh, ben, do you have anything to... Uh, well, I, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm revved up now. I, I want to... We only right, have but, one minute. So yeah, I, wanna... yeah, I was going to say, well, b- well, before we get into that, why don't you tell us a little bit about your uh, book, Dr. Nelson, and where people can get That's it. That's right, before we burn on. up this out. Oh, oh, certainly. Uh, and I appreciate that. The, it's the spiritual doorway in the brain, and it can be purchased um, through you know, any major outlet, you know, including Amazon. Um, it's uh, published by uh, Penguin, and and I must say I've been very pleased with the fact that it's it's, it's 
um, been re- well received by established uh, neuroscientists like Oliver Sacks, for example, and Ramachandran, um, and, and sleep experts. And you know what I do is I I I, I chronicle um, you know how people have had spiritual experiences, you know, and what what they what they have um, um, mean what these stories mean to them, and I, and I take their stories um, that they've told me, um, and I use them to illustrate how the brain um, is, is functioning during spiritual experience, because I think the brain does is a, a very important determinant of spiritual experience. Not the only one. I mean, you know, we can have other psychological aspects, social aspects, learning aspects, past life experiences, etc., but but how the brain functions during spiritual experience is very important, and, and that's that's what I go through in this book. And and when I talk about out of body experience, I mentioned earlier, I um, I do it in a more clear in a, in a clearer fashion with with diagrams. Yeah, so I think it becomes more evident. Okay, one of the things we one of our common themes here as people, meaning Ben and myself, trying to be. I suppose, I don't know, independent thinkers or successfully or as, unsuccessfully. As much as you can be. Yes. Uh, is what we call the island theory. And hmm. it seems the entire Western paradigm, at, at the risk of overgeneralizing. I'd say modern. Modern paradigm. I'm sorry. Yes, we've been corrected on that by several listeners. <laughs> okay. We tend to have a very intelligent listenership here. Uh, many of whom are stuck in traffic right now, so I'll be quick. Yeah. Um, the... Uh, the island theory essentially says that we assume, because of our upbringing, because of our culture, because of our education, that we are islands. We are entirely self-contained within these bodies. And uh, things like, uh, well, as they used to call it, ESP, extrasensory perception, uh, and any sort of thing that goes outside of ourselves is, is questioned. And, of course, we've been talking this evening about things, precisely that, things that go outside of ourselves, including out-of-the-body experiences, experiences of God and spirituality. Uh, do, you feel, do you think we have a point with this island theory idea? And uh, if so, how do we um, overcome that in order to gain more knowledge about what we've been talking about this evening? Well, I, I'm not sure it's something we need to overcome. Um, the, you know, we are the, the overriding... And the overwhelming, you know, perception that we have is that we are, you know, individual consciousnesses. That that you know is I I'm unaware of scientific evidence that that human experience exists outside of the brain. There's been speculation and some some interesting and some not so interesting um, on that fact. But there's there really been no Hard scientific data on that. Whatever um, that may, may constitute. Well, well, I, I, well, we mentioned earlier that science, you know, those tools are predictability, reproducibility, verification, and so you know, so those are the tools. And using those tools, you know, we don't we don't have evidence for it. Now, does that mean that it, it doesn't exist? No, actually. I'm not willing to accept that either. The absence of evidence doesn't mean, you know, that, that isn't proof that it doesn't exist. Um, you know, I, I 
keep my mind open to the great unknown because you know it'd be horribly arrogant for me of me to say. Yeah, I know the I know the purpose of the universe. <laughs> well, th- th- that's very well put <laughs> because uh, we often think that the term Homo sapiens should be qualified by something like if we say so ourselves, you know, and uh, uh, you know perhaps uh, Homo otterons, keeping with our theme, might be a more appropriate term for yeah. ourselves. Perhaps I, I mean, when you when you see how massively large the universe is and then you think of you know the time and 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 every time we we you know it seems like every page and chapter we turn on to understand the universe it gets queerer and queerer you know mm. and and it's got to be more bizarre than than anything we can possibly imagine mm. so well, but no, i'm sorry go ahead humbling. i i find that humbling so I, I, as, as do we yes do we it's interesting you brought up uh, William James, who was a great writer and philosopher, and he was one of the people who, co- I believe, as far as we can learn, who coined the term multiverse, uh, the sort of the quantum... You know, yeah, oh, so, I, oh, go ahead. I think he did. Uh, I'm not certain of that fact, but it wouldn't surprise me, because James was a, um, um, kept his mind open to the great thought now. In the great unseen, mm-hmm. uh, and I mean, he was he was, uh, to the you know to a point where it was uncomfortable for many of his contemporaries, and um, and I'm I'm actually very much that way. I I'm, I'm you know so um, yeah, I'd have to say I I fall in the William James's camp on that. Sure. Well, one of the reasons uh, we take the approaches we do is not because we are scientists. My degree is in philosophy, and Ben is is uh, about to get a degree in sound uh, engi- uh, audio engineering. And uh, so, but having spent a combined, I was figuring out today, Ben, is between the two of us, we have fifty-four years of experience in paranormal research, mm-hmm. and uh, from the trenches, from a, a skeptical point of view and I've uh, seen things that would make your hair stand on end I don't know about you but I'm losing mine rapidly and uh, <laughs> the the issue is that, that there's none of the old theories either of parapsychology psychology and I don't know enough about neuroscience to say but none of it is good enough I don't think to explain perhaps that's because of, of what we've been discussing as far as you know internal experience is concerned but the, except for this this multiverse idea, which I think begins to get at what we might be dealing with, you know, when you see a ghost, say, uh, or somebody, you know, running down the hallway uh, two weeks after their funeral, you know, you're probably dealing with with perhaps a, a perfectly physical parallel world. Uh, and I we don't have time to get into some of the things. You're, you're I don't flatter myself to think you've read any of my books, but you're welcome to do so, and that'll explain. But um, in any case, I think that, that uh, William James may be uh, may may have begun to uh, to do some uh, plumb some of the depths here that, that we've been talking about. Um, before, because we are burning it up rapidly, but I did want to get into spirituality. And um, wh- wh- you mentioned uh, this a sort of spiritual doorway in in the brain. W- what does that yeah. mean, and what what are its implications for well, our belief I think- systems? I, I think the brain participates in spiritual experience, and, sure. and I, I think that it's very important. And, and we, I think it, it does open new vistas for us uh, through brain operations and, and functioning of the brain. So, you know, and and my my interest was to try to understand um, 
how the brain could be participating in spiritual experience. Now, now near-death experience is arguably the most uh, dominant spiritual experience of our time. It's barely mentioned, you know, I'm, by William James, uh, who who you know collected many, many of of the of stories of spiritual experience. Um, it, it's mentioned some, but but uh, but it's. Not, certainly not in its contemporary form, but it's become dominant. Um, and I think um, in our society, I think partly because of the sensationalism, partly because um, these are stories told by very credible people, and, and also I think just because it's common. In fact, um, the in our series of 55 people who had a near-death experience, only half about, well, the most common cause was actually fainting. It was the most common cause, not heart attack, fainting. Hmm. The if you um, this was shown very nicely in the nineties, a publication in Lancet, the, the, a um, noise in a uh, um, series of fifty-seven looked at the medical records of people who had a near-death experience, and only half were medically in danger. Only half. Hmm. The other half were not. So you don't need to be physically near death to have a near-death experience. Indeed. Um, I, I just wanted to work in one more question. I guess we have to, hopefully we'll have time for it. Is What about the group experience? And I don't know of any group near-death experiences. That may have been possible in battle situations, things of that kind, I suppose. Uh, but I'm thinking of, mm-hmm. of uh, experiences that, that I had, N- nothing to do with near-death. Was everybody mm-hmm. was perfectly awake, and we, we were witness to, uh, this is back in 1971, witness to... Um, a number of phenomena at an abandoned village in Connecticut was my, quote, first case. And I'm thinking of six of us standing there and listening to an ox cart go by with the, with the, the driver yelling to the team mm. and, and the, uh, the crack of a whip and the wooden wheels, but we couldn't see it. I mm. mean, what, yeah. how on earth would that, well, was that group hysteria, know, as we used to call it? Or? Well, I don't know, but it reminds me of a story my two daughters, my Harvard-educated uh, daughter, told <laughs> with her sister, that um, they had a shared vision of what they took as an aberration, as a ghost, um, mm-hmm. in an old house that they saw simultaneously. Um, and they saw the same thing. So I, I can't pretend to uh, explain everything. No, um, I, can only, can I can only right. explain something. <laughs> Very, very true. Well, I'm afraid we're out of time. We have to have a contest drawing right now. But uh, Dr. Nelson, uh, Dr. Kevin R. Nelson, the University of Kentucky, it's been a great pleasure to have you with us, a wonderful conversation, and I hope we'll have you back. Well, thank you for having me. I really enjoyed it. Very good. All right, have a good one. Okay, everybody. Now, uh, what we're doing here is we're drawing uh, time for the long-awaited drawing for four free tickets to the second New England UFO conference on October 17th and 18th, City Hall, Lemonster, Massachusetts. Ben and I will present our new program, Strange Connections, UFOs, Cryptids, and Ghosts, on Friday evening, and some of the biggest names in UFO researchers in UFO research will be there speaking as well. So let's, um, and we emphasize that the drawing is for tickets only, does not include travel, accommodations, or other expenses. Ben, if you would be so kind as to draw a name. Drum roll, please. And it looks like Victoria Nevins of Denver, Colorado. Oh, my goodness. Well, Victoria, I hope you have a jet because we're not paying for it. But congratulations. (laughs) Maybe, uh, you know, some people plan to be in New England at, at 
for certain times. And uh, Victoria, congratulations. We'll be in touch if you're not listening uh, about your great victory this evening. Great and again, victory. Uh, there's that information that's going to be a great, great event. Uh, and it um, was terrific last year. It's, it's uh, grown to a two-day event. Uh, so let's, um, uh, you can check that out, uh, neufoconference.vpweb.com. Uh, go to our site, and there's a direct link behind theparanormal.com. So anyway, on Saturday, November 1st, Ben and I will be the featured speakers at the Autumn Paranormal Event to benefit the New Hampshire SPCA. This is, I'm telling you, we should just move to New Hampshire. Ben. Let's just live up there. This will take place at the Lane Memorial Library at 2 Academy Avenue in Hampton, New Hampshire, from noon to 4 p.m., and uh, we'll provide more info as the event approaches. And we had a great time on Saturday, thanks to Shane uh, Searway and uh, Bill Hall up in uh, at the uh, True Paranormal event in Brookline, New Hampshire. Great Indeed. audience, and we had a great time. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. So you can visit our website, BehindTheParanormal.com, where you can find over 550 free podcasts uh, from past shows on both ON 1240 and our four-and-a-half-year run on CBS Radio, along with special shows and podcasts as well. Also, check out our site at www.newenglandghosts.com, where there are case studies and photos along with articles by my dad. And you can find my books on Barnes & Noble Nook and Amazon Kindle and Amazon.com, etc., etc., etc. But if you buy them directly at BehindTheParanormal.com, I'll be happy to sign them for you. And you will help us keep all these 600-and-something podcasts free. And remember also the charities we mentioned earlier in the show. So my dad will not be here next Monday on September 29th, so I'll be hosting the Open Line Show with astronomer uh, Mark D'Antonio on the mutu- uh, of the Mutual UFO Network. But uh, we will cover all sorts of paranormal subjects and all sorts of good stuff like that, and so you can uh, check us out right here on WON1240 and ONWorldwide.com. That's 6 p.m. Eastern and 3 p.m. Pacific. And Mark is also one of the speakers at the uh, UFO conference coming up in October. Oh yes, 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 yes. Okay, it's, it's gonna be it's gonna be a lot of fun. It's, uh, it's gonna be true. It was great I'm, last year. Yeah, I'm just hoping huge that crowd. I'm hoping Victoria can actually like get out here. Then I'll feel bad. What if she? Well, you'd be feel bad if she can't get out. Here. Yes. Yes. Okay. Yes. 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 So well, it's, a, it's more of a moral victory, really. Well, if you do happen to win tickets on this show, they are transferable. I mean, you can give them to anyone you wish. So that's true. I'll be in touch with Victoria and let her know that she won. Indeed. Okay, well, we leave you this evening with a simple quote from a person or persons unknown. Quote, the happiest people don't have, to, don't have the best of everything. They just make the best of what they have. Unquote. I'm Paul Eno. And I'm Ben Eno, and thank you for joining us on our great cosmic journey, and we shall see you next time. Return to this radio frequency 167 hours from now for another edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno.